Great to be with you this morning. Um, Derek might have mentioned it, or perhaps it was Paul, you know, uh, New Life Gathers to Glorify God in the Gospel of Grace. And uh, last week, we began our new sermon series called I Promise. Um, this is our series on baptism that aims to ask the question, who is responsible for keeping the promises of baptism? Who's responsible for keeping the promises of baptism? So let this question uh, be the big reflection point over the you know, coming series, over this entire series, um, as we go through each week. You know, reflect upon this question again, ask yourself this question, and try to figure out, I guess, um, how the sermon this week you know, plays into this question as well. Now last week, we looked to set a bit of the foundational you know, groundwork, the theological groundwork, uh, to work the ground and till the soil a little bit uh, to prepare us for the rest of the sermon series so that we have an understanding of what we're talking about when we talk about baptism. You know, because I know that although baptism is such a big thing in the church, um, many times we don't really understand uh, some of the things that go on with baptism. You know, we don't actually understand what it means. Uh, we don't really know the essentials um, around it. So we talked through last week the links between uh, the circumcision of old and baptism of new. Um, I highly recommend going back and reviewing as necessary um, so that I don't have to keep saying that word uh, every single week. Uh, but the most important thing that we came away with was that the essential thing here wasn't the act itself. You know, the essential thing wasn't even the act of baptism itself, but instead what the act is based on. Okay, so when we talk about these things, you know, why do we actually do this? Well, it's the grace of God who gave us these signs. And again, listen through the entire series, you know, before you come to any sort of big decisions about baptism, before you start coming to any big conclusions about baptism as well. Uh, let's listen through the whole series, and then hopefully it'll all start coming together as you discuss with those around you and as you uh, hear the word preached as well. Today, what we aim to figure out is if going by last week, grace was the important thing, what's the point of these signs then? You know, why do we even have these signs then? Okay. Uh, before we get into that, how about I pray for us? And we'll talk through that. Father, you are the gracious one. Your character speaks of your grace. Your actions speak of this grace as well, God. The way that you've given your son over into sin and death for us, God. That he might become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. It's a mystery, Lord, how you allow this to happen. Your love itself is a mystery, God. As we think upon your holiness, as we look to the temple of God, as we look to the temple that you're building in our hearts, Lord, we're struck by the mystery of it all, God, just by your goodness in the face of our evil. Lord, would you guide us in our service this morning? Would you speak to our hearts in a way that we, is undeniable? Our hearts, Lord, are unchangeable without you, and yet you transform us. You change our lives, Lord. Would you help us, Lord, by receiving this change, by receiving your word into our hearts, Lord, that we might be able to lay down our defenses, that we might be able to receive this transformation, that we can see and speak of your transformation to this world, God. 
We want to receive the good news of grace with gladness. And we want, Lord, to hold on to the truth of what you do. And we want to see, Lord, what these signs even mean and what these things do in our hearts as well, God. So would you speak to us in a way that we can understand, in a way that's clear? Change our hearts, Lord, once again. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there are five theological pillars when it comes to the foundations of our Christian faith. Um, They come from the Reformation. So these are so central to our beliefs about how we're saved by God when it comes to the Protestant church, when it comes to uh, our church, that if you remove any of these foundational pillars from a church, it no longer is the church. It corrupts our faith. Okay, so I'll just go through them. These are the five sole. Maybe you've heard of them as the five solas of faith. Uh, Sola meaning alone in Latin, okay? So sola scriptura. Uh, By scripture alone, our consciences are bound as truth is revealed through the scriptures. Okay, so the Bible reveals truth and it binds our consciences. So in scripture alone, all disagreements find their resolution as well. So when we talk theology, we have to come to a conclusion based not on tradition, based not on culture, but based on scripture. Okay, this is why we preach the word. Sola fide, the second one, by faith alone, not by our own, our own works, you know, we're very familiar with this in the Christian church, or any sense that we deserve it. Okay, all of that notion goes out the window. We're justified by faith alone. Sola gratia, so by grace alone, We talk about this every week, right? By grace alone, only the grace of God brings salvation. It's an unearned gift since we're sinners saved by grace, and so we have faith in this grace that God gives us. And solus Christus, through Christ alone, he's the one whose grace that we depend upon. Jesus Christ is the only mediator between us and, and God, and so salvation is through no other No other name, there's no priest, no pastor, no higher class that mediates your salvation. And finally, soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone since salvation is only through him. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's through his grace, through his son. There's no glory given to anyone else on here, on earth, or up in heaven, whether Jesus' family, whether the saints, or the angels, or anyone. Glory to God alone. So we hold these five pillars to be true and central to our faith. These are the big pillars of our faith. And if we established last week as well that the power is in the grace of God, not in the acts that we participate in in themselves, then you might ask this question, then what use do we have for baptism? What's the point of it then? What use do we have for communion? You might even ask. If it's in faith alone, if it's by these five pillars that we believe in, why do we even have these signs anymore? So let's talk about the sacraments then, okay? What are they? What are sacraments? Sacraments are the visible signs and seals given to us by God. God gives us these signs and seals, baptism and the communion. These are the two sacraments of the church, okay? They're signs and seals that were bound together, all of us bound together at New Life, bound together with other churches all around the world 
as a community of faith by Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. These signs, they point to Jesus, his death and his resurrection. Romans 6 tells us we were buried with him by baptism into death. In order that we would walk in the newness of life as Christ was raised from the dead by the Father. So Romans 6 links together for us that if we were united with Jesus in the likeness of his death, then certainly also in the likeness of his resurrection as well. Not only do we die with him, we're raised with him. But what's the link to baptism here? Now Paul says it in his letter. He says we're buried in baptism. Why does Paul talk about baptism when talking about this salvation? We come together each week. We don't baptize each week, though. We know that salvation comes through faith alone, in grace alone, by Christ alone, to the glory of God alone as revealed in the scriptures alone. So do we need these signs and seals, the baptism and the communion? I've had this tendency for most of my life to talk in somewhat extreme terms. Okay, I don't know if you relate with me in this. I say things like, oh, this is the worst thing in the world, when clearly it's not the worst thing. Like, I might get a paper cut, and I might say, this is the worst thing in the world. You know, and there's like a tear running down my cheek. Or I might say, this is the greatest thing that mankind has ever discovered. I'm talking about a potato chip that I've discovered, and I'm talking about how it's the greatest thing ever. Okay, it's hyperbole, right? I studied literature and poetry in university, so it just kind of amplified my tendency to do these things. And then Bora married this person. And so sometimes it's okay, and sometimes it's used to great effect humorously. I, I think humorously. She doesn't think so sometimes. It can drive Bora nuts if we're in the middle of an argument and then this side of me comes out. I tend to exaggerate a little bit. We're arguing about something, and I just talk about how this always happens, or this is the worst thing in the world. And so she might ask me not to do that sometimes, okay? She's just gone to the other room, and so I can talk about this, right? So she might ask me not to do this sometimes, and I learn from that, and I try to get rid of that habit. I try to hold back from, you know, talking in those terms. I, I probably say, you know, I've just done the worst thing in the world, you know, as I'm saying these things. And then I promise, quite extremely, to never do these things ever again, and also to never do anything like it ever again. And she just, that's not what I'm talking about. Like, this is the exact thing, right? We tend to be a little bit extreme like this sometimes when it comes to faith. Like, when it comes to faith, we tend to talk in terms like this. We follow these pendulum swings when it comes to our faith, when it comes to behaviors, when it comes to beliefs. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, sometimes, theologically, we're over here, and we kind of think this is bad, and so we swing completely to the other extreme, okay? If we're told one thing is good, often we'd like to infer, well, then the other thing must be completely bad. You know, we make our own conclusions about things, and then we throw certain things completely out the window. So when we hear that it's by faith alone that we're saved, Sometimes it makes us respond by saying, 
Well, then all church traditions, all sacraments, they must be bad. They must be completely thrown out. You know, like there's thousands of years of church history that talk about people that respond in such extreme terms. Do you ever see this? Like maybe it's not, you know, to that extreme, okay? But like we might, some, sometimes we might have even people around us. Maybe that's easier, okay? Maybe it's the person next to you, okay? They think, they get overly concerned sometimes with things like, I mean, we're in a wider Korean church, okay? So let's pick on that for a moment. So they might look at things like dawn prayer or, you know, praying out loud like all the Korean guys do. We don't do that as much at New Life, right? And they might say, well, these are just traditional or cultural things. Why do we have them? Aren't they sinful then? Why bother? Or even the mode or the timing of baptism. This is a big church division point, divisive point. You know, like looking through church history, People have died over the mode and the timing of baptism. People have murdered each other over this thing. Whole churches have divided. And we try to say that a particular way of doing things is the only way to truth. We tend to amplify things into a salvation issue. We have a reasonable faith. Is that fair to say? Christianity is a reasonable faith. We can reason together about faith. We can talk about things. There's no need for rashness, for extreme emotional swings when it comes to faith. There's no salvation issue here. In our reasonable faith, it stands to reason then that if Jesus participates with us in his life, death, and his resurrection, then we participate with him in his. It's reasonable, it's logical, right? If he participates with us, then surely we're invited to participate with him. In some way, scripture tells us, baptism mediates this participation. Romans 6 tells us it's the instrument through which we are buried with him. Paul tells us in our passage today. The central element still remains faith. Throughout the rest of the letter to the Romans, Paul talks all about faith. It's only in these verses that he talks about baptism. And so he makes it very clear that it's genuine faith, even without baptism, that brings salvation. This much can be inferred. And you can look to even the example of the thief crucified next to Jesus before he dies making that claim. He doesn't get baptized. Jesus tells him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Is it okay for you not to be baptized? Yes. And yet, the centrality of faith to our salvation, it shouldn't diminish what baptism does. As much as faith is front and center in the letter to the Romans, and indeed to our Christianity as well, let's say that we get to ask a little bit of a Q&A with the Apostle Paul, and we get to ask him, well, do I need to be baptized? 
Is it necessary? Does someone need to be baptized? Is it okay for us not to be baptized? I think he would probably respond, why would you even think about not being baptized? Like, yes, the answer is yes, you don't have to, but why is that even a question? In an ideal setting, you would be baptized. The sacraments are good gifts given to us by God. It's only us that look at these gifts and think, are we sure about this? Because it's not the ultimate gift, and we try to place it aside. By our participation in the sacraments, in baptism once in our lifetimes, and the communion regularly, ongoing throughout our lifetimes, the Holy Spirit more fully declares and seals the promises of the gospel to us. How, you might ask. A very reasonable question. How does he do this? We're a reasonable people surrounded by a very logical world, right? Like we look around this world and we attempt to make sense of this world that we're living in. We try to reason together. Like if bad things happen, we wonder, why are humans doing this? And we try to figure that out. You know, if good things happen, we try to figure that out too, everything. And yet our Christian faith, and indeed our God, he can tend to be a little bit mysterious. It can be maddening sometimes, trying to figure out this God. If you're a very logical person and you try to figure out this God, you can be driven mad. Because of the way that we grow up, you know, because we're in this endless pursuit from our birth to try to understand everything there is to know, we're desperately trying to figure everything out. We have this expectation that we can understand everything there is to know about God. Like, we believe this sometimes. We believe that we can understand everything there is to know about God. You know, you guys know I have a son, right? I know that there's a very limited amount of time that I can entertain him, that I can be his biggest form of entertainment just by playing peekaboo, because he genuinely believes Dad disappeared. I'm behind his hands, but he can't see me for some reason, and he's like, this is, how, how are you doing this? And he's amazed, but it's a very limited amount of time. He's starting to understand that things or people that he can't see don't necessarily disappear. He understands the permanence of objects or of people, okay? As you see children growing and you try to, you know, figure out what they're doing, they're trying to understand. We do too. This is us. We try to figure out everything and we like to reject the mysterious. We don't like being left in the dark. We don't like feeling like we don't know something. But new life, it's beyond our human capacity to know all there is to know about God. I don't know if that's terrifying or reassuring to you, but it's beyond our human capacity to know everything there is to know about God. He says it, his ways are higher than ours. As the heavens are higher than this earth, so are his ways. As much as we have a reasonable faith, at the end of the day, it's that, it's faith. 
God's blessing and grace come to us in unique and very mysterious ways through the sacraments of baptism and communion. Romans 6.4 reads, Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in the newness of life. As the verse tells us, it's so that we too may walk in the newness of life. In order that we too may walk, there's, there's cause here. This is what the Apostle Paul is talking about. There's an actual cause, okay? We as Christians are called to live this new life in Christ by participating in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the change that comes with a new life in him. As we stand together and participate in baptisms and communions together as one body, we're able to look together at the sign, the symbol of God's blessing of salvation, his forgiveness for our sins, our reception of the Holy Spirit who now lives in us, and this relationship that we now enjoy with God. This is how it serves as a sign. Not only are we called to live this new life, we're actually empowered by it as well. Here's the beautiful truth of the gospel. Okay? Jesus Christ in his incarnation here on earth, in the flesh, he participates with us. Yeah, we, we get this part, right? Like we talk about how Jesus incarnates here on earth. He participates with us in this life through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. He comes among his people. He is Emmanuel, God among us. We know from our five sole that this is happening one way. Salvation happens one way. All we bring to the table is our need for salvation. It happens because of God, not because of our merit. And yet, as we're invited through this, as Jesus participates with us, we participate with him two ways. It's not just one way in that respect. He invites us as his children. We have rights, we have freedoms, we have responsibilities as his children. This is key to your faith. This will become a keystone to your faith if you get this, okay? Something is happening to us as we actually participate in the sacraments. Like when we do these things together, in baptism and communion, we find visible participatory signs that create, there's an intersection of what's tangible here on earth and what's intangible, the mysterious. Something is happening. And through his power, we're strengthened to live new lives in Christ. Now I'm aware that this might be very difficult to grasp. I'm also aware that the sermons that are preached here on Sundays, it might feel a little bit difficult to apply sometimes. I don't often end the sermon by saying, here's what you can do now. For the rest of the week, here's what you can do. I don't do that, okay? That's by design, so that you can actually go away and reflect and grow in your relationship with Christ. It's very easy, when we talk about prayer and reading the Bible, these aren't just helpful tips to live a better Christian life. 
It is the Christian life. It's the means to your relationship with Jesus. Like, they help you to cultivate a real living relationship with God. It's right here in front of us. We can actually have a real living relationship with God. It's so that you can be deeply reflective. It's so that you can have real conversations with your Father in heaven. Not just walk away with a to-do list for the rest of the week that you can check off and feel like, I've done my part, and you don't actually grow with Christ. But here's something tangible for you to reflect upon when it comes to baptism and communion. What's the context in which these sacraments take place? Where and when do we do these things? We haven't done any baptisms recently since I've been on board. You know, recently due to COVID restrictions, we just haven't been able to. But we've been able to worship together a few times through communion. Have you noticed that it's never personal? It's never just you by yourself. You don't go home and administer the communion to yourself. Like, they're not just personal individual experiences. We're members of the body of Christ together. We do this only together. We belong as part of a community here at New Life. So participating together in baptisms and communion, they're visible signs that we belong to the community together. Excuse me. Very similar to what we talked about last week with the, with the circumcision of old, how it was a visible sign of the belonging that a person had to a community. Communion also plays this part. Each time you participate in the sacraments, you declare that you're part of the people who belong to Jesus. When you come forward to take the communion, if you've been baptized, these are signs that you belong to the people who belong to Jesus. Theologian J.F. Pecker, he puts it like this, as the preaching of the word makes the gospel audible, so the sacraments make it visible and God stirs up faith by both means. You hear the preaching of the gospel each week, and like this, you know, this causes you to believe in grace because of what you heard. Faith comes from hearing, Romans tells us. The sacraments of baptism and communion, they make the gospel visible to you. You see a representation, a recreation of the gospel. Each time you see someone get baptized, each time you take part in the communion. As it becomes visible to you, you believe in grace. That's the hope. Through seeing and participating in them, seeing becomes believing. You might have experienced this before, okay? As you sat and reflected during the communions, or perhaps you've been lucky enough to be baptized or watch someone get baptized and you might have felt something moving inside of you. Maybe you couldn't put it to words, you know? You felt like something was happening in your faith, though. And as you opened up, let's use the communion as an example, let's, as you opened up the little single-use, you know, cup, and you ate the wafer, you drank the little grape juice, as the word of blessing was extended to you, reminding you that these are the body and the blood of Jesus. 
you participated among brothers and sisters around you. You looked around you, you saw everyone else doing the same thing. You participated together and faith grew in you in some way. Why would that happen? What magical power is there in this little single-use cup? Logically, there's nothing there. It's a wafer. But your faith grew quite mysteriously. Our Christianity is both reasonable and mysterious. Don't try to remove all the mystery from your faith. That's not how we arrive. We can talk and we can ask questions and we can reason together. I think those are good things that we can do. When you get together with your life groups, when you're talking with your brothers and sisters, talk about these things. And we can arrive at a great many conclusions. Great. And yet at the end of all this, we still have to believe in faith in order to arrive anywhere that's worth anything. Without faith, we have nothing. With this in mind, we will take part in one of the sacraments this morning, and we'll give God room to work in our hearts. As we take part in the communion, let God work in your heart. Perhaps you haven't reflected on it in the past, perhaps you haven't thought about it, but this is the time to do it. As the Lord Jesus instituted, so we also carry out today, that we might see and participate in the gospel of grace together and proclaim the Lord's death until his return. So God's forgiveness is available to all who recognize their need for his grace. And as we heard, it's by faith alone and God's grace alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone as revealed in the scriptures alone. We're sinners saved by grace, and in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, this grace is made available to us. Now, as the sacraments are visible signs and seals that we're bound together as a community of faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, what we're going to be participating in together today, this communion, it's a sign, and it symbolizes for us the salvation, the forgiveness, and the gift of the Holy Spirit and this relationship that we now have with Jesus. Reflect on those things. It's a seal as well, though. The communion brings these blessings to us in an ineffable way, in a very mysterious way, as the Holy Spirit more fully declares and seals the promises of the gospel to us. Lower your defenses and let him do that. So what is the communion? The communion is an act of remembrance. We look in the past and we see what Jesus did. It's a reminder, visibly, of what Jesus did for us, and this reminds us to live gratefully. What does it do in the present? The communion is a declaration of our continued dependence upon him. There is that mysterious element there. How do we depend upon him day to day? The present day reality is, just as God's grace is what was needed for our salvation, we can't let go of that now. It continues today. We still need his grace for a life of holiness today. We can't do it on our own. We can't force ourselves. So, we receive the body and blood of Jesus as a seal of that grace upon us. We believe in faith that the Holy Spirit is working in us, is changing us, is transforming us into the image 
of the Son of God, Jesus. And the communion is a glimpse into our future as well. Together we participate in a little slice of the future that we hope in. The marriage supper of Jesus and the church at our Lord's uh, glorious return at the end of days. When seeing will truly be believing and faith will be made sight. So here at New Life, we celebrate and participate together in the communion on the first Sunday of each month. And as you heard today, it is one of two sacraments which serve as signs and seals. So allow the Holy Spirit now, as we read the scripture, to move and transform your heart so that you can love Jesus more. Let that be your prayer this morning. Let me read for us from 1 Corinthians. For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So as you heard in the scriptures, the communion is only for those who follow Christ. If you're not a follower of Christ, please refrain from taking the communion as you would only drink judgment upon yourself. If, however, through the service today, through the worship, through the prayers, you declare Jesus as your savior, then by all means, come forward and take the communion with us. We invite you to participate together as a fully-fledged family member of the Lord Jesus. And we do ask that you make yourself known to us at the conclusion of the service. Now, for followers of Jesus, the communion is for those who aren't under current church church discipline um, or living in unrepentant sin. So the command is to examine yourself before coming forward to receive the communion and then to go from there to live in repentance and by faith in the grace of God. Let me pray for us. Father, your love is a mystery to us, God. How can such a holy and perfect God stand us in his presence? And yet not only do you Not only do you look upon us, not only do you stand next to us, but you even give your son that we might be adopted into your family. We look upon you as sons and as daughters of the great father. And we give thanks to you once again this morning. We ask Lord that you would build faith in our hearts We ask, Lord, that you would help us to be receptive to the mystery of it all, God. That you would help us, Lord, to receive your power in our lives, that we might be changed for good, that we might be transformed into the image of your son, Jesus. We know, Lord, that we don't have the tools to do it on our own. So we turn to your Holy Spirit, which now resides in us, and we ask, Lord, you would transform us from the inside out, that indeed you would transform our hearts 
and our disposition towards you, that we might love your son more and more, that we might glorify you through our lives. Let our lives now speak of your grace, of your goodness, of your salvation. Let that now become a sign of your goodness towards this world as well. That people around us, that our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family might be able to know who you are, might be able to say that we have been transformed for good, that they might see and they might believe as well. Would you be with us? Help us to love you. Help us, Lord, once again to embrace your mystery and to be changed by you. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.